our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, programs like this one exist because it's essential that we think clearly and independently during times of crisis. And I'm not saying that there's a crisis, but I am going to say if there isn't, it's missing a really great opportunity. And we should be known uh, more for who we are and what we stand for than simply what we're against. So I invite you to come and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers to claim your heritage as a free individual and then to step forward and make the difference that you were born to make. My program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, GovernYourIncome.com, and also SolarPatriots.com. Now, all the links to these are found in the show notes at my website, TheBrianHydeShow.com. Let's, uh, let's dive right in. So uh, Thanksgiving season has come. And, and gone, so I hope you had a good uh, Thanksgiving holiday. And I want you to know this year, well, there's two things. First of all, I tried and failed to strictly regulate my food consumption for Thanksgiving Day. I just, I knew there was going to be a ton of great food. My son did a brisket. My father-in-law did a pork loin. I smoked a turkey. And, of course, uh, there were so many other contributors. My wife is a wonderful baker, and uh, she made uh, sourdough rolls that were just to die for. I'm sorry. If I'm making you hungry, I apologize. But my point is I knew there was going to be a lot of great food. And I thought, I'm going to pace myself here. I'm going to make sure just a little taste of everything. That's all I need, just just a taste. So I don't end up, you know, feeling <clears throat> overextended or just like I, like I ate myself into a stupor. But by gosh, I did it. I ate myself into a stupor, just <laughs> big as life. And there I sat, uh, you know, on Thanksgiving afternoon going, oh, I'm so miserable. Wait, is that pecan pie? Oh, man, <laughs> let's add to the misery. So I failed on that uh, regard. However, there was another thing that uh, that I had in mind as Thanksgiving Day uh, came and went. And uh, that was given all of the things that I've seen happen in the last two years or so. I thought, I am going to give some very serious thought to what it means to be grateful. And by that, I mean, I, I, I paid attention to the people and things in my life that matter. And very consciously, you know, sent my gratitude back to God for, um, for those things being a part of my life. And that was a good exercise. That actually was really, really great. I don't know if it's the fact that I moved earlier this year, but I'm so much less attached to my stuff, probably because about the time we were in the middle of our move, um, that's when I really started to recognize this stuff owns me. I mean, it's like it's like a weight. It's it's like an anchor that's dragging me down because uh, it, you have to deal with it. If you've moved, you understand what I'm talking about. It's like, wow, we accumulated stuff for... I don't remember how many years we were in, in uh, you know, one place, but oh my goodness, you just, 
you get so much stuff, it becomes absolutely overwhelming. So I'm less enamored with stuff, but absolutely dialed in on the people and the qualities of life that, uh, that really need to be appreciated. And I think the people have to come first. First and foremost, I was, uh, I was very happy to, um, to get to connect personally and to meet my uh, biological dad in, in person this year. And I never even, I never suspected that if the day came that I would, uh, you know, find out who my biological parents were. I don't know why, but uh, I always discounted the idea that I would ever meet my bio dad just because it was, I don't know why. It was always, no, 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 you're going to meet your birth mother and you have this uh, tearful reunion and tell her thank you for the great sacrifice that she made. Which, by the way, um, had that reunion and, and delivered that message and it was every bit as edifying as, as I hoped it could be, um, a huge blessing. But I had not realized that uh, my biological father would actually play a role in helping me connect with my biological mother. So when I got a chance to meet with him and spend a little bit of time with him, um, I, was, uh, I was blown away at how important that relationship has become to me. And even though, you know, we're, we're miles and miles away, um, you know, on paper, there are a lot of areas where he and I really don't line up, you know, in terms of worldview, religion, politics, and so forth. We just don't line up. But that none of that matters. And that is the long point I'm finally getting to here is um, the people that matter most in your life, typically they're going to matter not because, well, we agree, you know, Trump was a great president and, you know, this... Uh, and that's fine if you both believe that way. If you both, you know, think that, that's, that's great. But that's not the basis on which we should be, you know, basing our relationships or or vetting those with whom we'll hang out. You know, another divide. Well, you know, she's a great person, but she just won't get the vaccine. And, you know, we've, we've really had to turn our backs on her, you know, kind of figuratively and sometimes literally throw them out in the cold because they won't tow this line. So there's a lot of artificial division. And I'm just going to suggest that maybe that's not such a great thing. Maybe that's not the best way to go about determining who's going to be in your life and who isn't. And I only say that because the people I I meet who are most dogmatic about those kinds of things invariably seem to be the most miserable people that I've ever met. And that doesn't mean, therefore, I have a duty to step up and change them and tell them the error of their ways. See, I'm a little more concerned about figuring out the error of my ways and then taking whatever steps necessary to, you know, address those things. So here's, here's the bottom line. I found a lot to be grateful for. In fact, you, if you are listening to this show, um, are among those things for which I am most grateful. I never take it for granted that uh, there's going to be a listening audience. I, I, I pride myself on having, let's see, I think I'm up to seven listeners now. And I love each and every one of those seven listeners, but uh, I never take for granted that there's going to be someone listening and people are hanging on every word because I just don't know. What I do know is there is a great need today for people who are willing to speak the truth and to even speak unpopular truths. And we're going to get into that a little bit in today's show. I will talk about uh, the idea that we need to fight information disorder. And that means uh, there needs to be some kind of a commission that decides what is misinformation, what is acceptable information, and how do we punish those who stray from it. 
That doesn't sound like a very uh, very good place to go, but uh, it looks like that's where we seem to be headed. Oh, and didn't you notice just in time for, you know, the holiday season and, you know, to breathe a little more relevancy into, well, what does Dr. Fauci say? Um, now the the news headlines, the memo has gone out. Oh, it looks like the narrative managers are telling us there's a new South African variant of COVID that is very dangerous, very disturbing. And yeah, I don't I don't want to just sound like the kid sticking his fingers in his ears and chanting so I don't have to listen. But this seems kind of predictable to me, or at least it seems that. Someone is trying to to remind us how much we need them to tell us what to do. Now, remember, you can have everybody take a test while they stand in the garage. And then after everybody passes the test, and assuming everybody's fully vaccinated, then you should be able to go in and enjoy the holidays with one another and, you know, not have to mask up or something. Well, I'm really sorry, but, uh, you know, the, I noticed the president yesterday said, well, we're getting closer to, to normal again, folks, and... You know, that's one of the great things about the holidays. We can celebrate them a little closer to normal. Uh, Yeah, about that. My family and I decided uh, over a year ago that it was time for us to go back to normal. And so we did. We had a pre-Thanksgiving with my my mom, and which was a great thing. Because uh, last year, you know, she had spent the, ve- the better part of the year completely alone, isolated, slowly losing her mind, you know, like like people do when they're completely shut off from their loved ones. That just was intolerable. And I know the concerns were a lot greater last year. Oh, we don't know what's going to happen. The, the vaccine wasn't widely distributed at that time. What do we do? What do we do? Well, we showed up on her doorstep for Christmas last year. We uh, we threw her a birthday party when, when her birthday came around. We, you know, we tried to, to mitigate exposure as much as possible, but it wasn't going to stop us from living our lives. And I'm going to suggest that uh, that's, that's a decision everybody has to make for themselves, but I'm glad we made that decision. And frankly, our lives have been a lot better as a result. Now, we don't always see eye to eye. My mom and I, for instance, don't see eye to eye on, you know, certain things pertaining to COVID and masks and vaccines and so forth. Given that she gets most of her information, particularly uh, her understanding of what's going on in the world, directly from, you know, TV news, what she reads in the newspaper, she's been fed a pretty steady diet of fear. So she may not have access to some of the information that uh, you and I have access to, but it's not a reason to cut off those relationships. So when we come back, we're going to talk gratitude, and I mean real gratitude. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Happy to start out here with an essay from Barry Brownstein. I swear he knocks it out of the park every single time that I see a new essay hit my inbox, I'm like, oh, great. This is this is going to be good. I, I set aside a little time. I put on my slippers. I make myself comfortable. And then I sit down and I enjoy, almost like it's a fine meal. And uh, this, this really was a fine meal of uh, food for thought. Barry Brownstein's latest, uh, latest uh, essay is Transforming Our Ingratitude into Gratitude. And more broadly, he's teaching here how individuals cooperate 
and bring forth the miracles of the modern economy. I thought this was super timely. He starts with a quote from Thomas Sowell. Some Americans will never appreciate America until after they've helped destroy it and have then begun to suffer the consequences. He then goes on to quote psychology professor Robert Emmons in his book, Thanks, How Practicing Gratitude Can Make You Happier. Emmons says ingratitude leads inevitably to a confining, restricting, and shrinking sense of self. Emotions such as anger, resentment, envy, and bitterness tend to undermine social relations. And Barry Brownstein asks, is the epidemic anger we observe, even before COVID, linked to ingratitude? Okay, fair question. He says, ungrateful thinking may seem justified given what a thinker sees as reality. Without a historical context and literacy in economics, a person can be caught up in an ill-informed thought storm, yet be sure they understand the world clearly and objectively. In their book, The Knowledge Illusion, cognitive scientists Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach observed that in general, we don't appreciate how little we know. The tiniest bit of knowledge makes us feel like experts. Once we feel like an expert, we start talking like an expert. Now, if your progressive colleague or neighbor irritates you with a talk track from NPR or the New York Times or CNN, learn from them. Don't be compelled to adopt their views, but notice canned opinions of any kind are rarely persuasive. Just reciting sound bites is just not effective. So Brownstein says to ground your thinking more firmly in economics, reading Hayek will help. Or admittedly, at least initially, Hayek can be difficult to read. But by persevering to understand Hayek's meaning, you demonstrate your commitment to being a champion of liberty. Ingratitude you harbor in your thinking may be replaced with gratitude as you learn lessons from Hayek. So here are a couple of those lessons. Gratitude lesson number one, allow different strokes for different folks to power your world. The use of knowledge in society is arguably the most important journal journal article rather written by a social scientist in the 20th century and Hayek's insight was deceptively simple he said the economic problem is a problem of the utilization of knowledge which is not given to anyone in its totality put another way knowledge is dispersed the knowledge of the circumstances of which we must make use never exists in concentrated or integrated forms but solely as the dispersed bits of incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge which all the separate individuals possess. So government planners who turn a blind eye to Hayek's insight, it's not just fervent planners who resist Hayek's insight. Anyone who wants to rely on experts to make the world a better place will struggle with Hayek's ideas, even while contentiously debating which experts to follow. Some are sure if only everyone did what they or their favorite experts thought was correct, well, then the world would be a better place. Hayek shows us that the life we take for granted would not be possible if everyone followed the dictates of experts. Hayek writes in The Market Order or Cadillacy contained in Law, Legislation, and Liberty, Volume 2, that most of the knowledge on which we rely in pursuit of our ends is the unintended byproduct of others exploring the world in different directions from those we pursue ourselves. In truth, it's good that others are impelled by different aims. Knowledge is generated as different people pursue different purposes, and the knowledge we make use of would never have become available to us if only those ends were pursued which we, dis- 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 which we regarded, regarded rather as desirable. 
As Sly and the Family Stone sang in their song, Everyday People, sometimes I write and I can be wrong. Different strokes for different folks. So taking the absurd position that anyone knows how others should use their energy makes the advancement of society impossible. When planners force others to operate along a narrow set of ends, the rate of discovery grinds down. In Hayek's words, the forces for intellectual progress would be much confined. So Barry Brownstein points out here, the modern world is built on specialization and interdependence. Each person does what he does best and relies on the efforts of others. Now, most of us would perish without the efforts of others. Psychologist David Reynolds has written extensively on gratitude. In a handbook for constructive living, he observes, quote, I am wearing clothes others made for me, eating food others grew and prepared for me, using tools others designed and fabricated and taught me how to use, speaking words others defined and explained. The list goes on and on. Any verb I can think. Any verb I can think of, rather, sleep, play tennis, drive, lecture, watch, bathe, can be followed by a phrase attributing the action to some supporting role by others. There's nothing I do that is thanks to my own efforts alone. That's pretty powerful. Here's gratitude lesson number two. You can't control what you can never understand. Now, Barry Brownstein writes, human beings seek order in their lives. Yet a sense of chaos creeps in as the societal and organizational problems we face grow ever more complex. Does this complexity require us to exert more control or less? Well, Hayek's answer to this question may seem initially counterintuitive. Hayek observes that when we see order, the first answer to which our anthropomorphic, uh, anthropo, let's try this again, anthropomorphic habits of thought almost inevitably lead us to is that it must be due to the design of some thinking mind. In Cosmos and Taxis, contained in Law and Legislation, Law, Legislation and Liberty, Volume 1, Hayek brings to light two types of order. A cosmos is a grown order, self-generating or endogenous order, described as <clears throat> a spontaneous order and has no specific purpose. A taxis is a made Exogenous, constructed, artificial order, and usually has a stated purpose. So, he says it's helpful to understand, Hayek's not saying that taxes is a bad thing. After all, an organization is a taxes. It is an order constructed for a specific purpose. But since some believe order cannot be spontaneous and must come from control, conceiving of spontaneous order is difficult for them. Yet opening our eyes to the concept of cosmos leads to startling changes in how we view markets and even business management. We begin to understand a seemingly paradoxical conclusion. The more control we exert, the less order we experience. D. Hawk, legendary founder of Visa and its longtime CEO, tells us that simple rules lead to complex orders, while complex rules lead to simple orders. Hawk writes, simple, clear purpose and principles give rise to complex, intelligent behavior. Complex rules and regulations give rise to simple, stupid behavior. Of course, there's no one-size-fits-all rule here. Individuals and organizations must undertake a process of discovery to change old habits of mind. So to understand the limits of control-oriented habits of thought, Barry Brownstein suggests, let's look at some of the characteristics of spontaneous orders. Now, Hayek wrote, the degree of complexity of spontaneous order isn't limited to what the human mind can master. 
Its existence need not manifest itself to our senses, but may be based on purely abstract relations which we can only mentally reconstruct. And not having been made, it cannot legitimately be said to have a particular purpose, although our awareness of its existence may be extremely important for a successful pursuit of a great variety of different purposes. Now, Barry Brownstein clarifies here, it's the first characteristic of spontaneous order that gives us the most trouble. In other words, our mind cannot master the complexity of spontaneous order. We're going to come back to his commentary in just a couple of minutes. We've got to take a very quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my premier sponsors, and they are offering something very special for my listeners alone, and that is a 25% discount at checkout. If you use the coupon code H-Y-D-E, that's right, just my last name, put in Hyde at your checkout and you'll save 25%. That's a, that's a nice, steep discount, better than you would get if you went to ReadyWise Foods themselves. But uh, take a look at their website. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And if you see something that you need or if you see something that would actually make a great you know, gift for gift-giving season, then maybe consider grabbing some today. Score yourself that nice 25% discount and then enjoy the peace of mind that comes from being prepared. And if you can, give that gift of peace of mind to the people you care most about in your life. So I've been sharing this article here from Barry Brownstein about uh, transforming our ingratitude into gratitude. And a lot of this comes from understanding that we, we have a lot to be thankful for, but among the things that we have to be thankful for is the idea that not everybody needs to see everything exactly the same way. It's really important that we don't try so hard to control everything and everybody because we, we actually damn ourselves. We, we stifle ourselves in the process. Brownstein points out many people have trouble understanding the spontaneous nature of markets, for instance. Hayek pointed out that critics pour uncomprehending ridicule on Adam Smith's expression of the invisible hand, which, by which in the language of his time, he described how man is led to promote an end which was no part of his intentions. And Hayek explains how spontaneous orders use dispersed knowledge without this knowledge ever being concentrated in a single mind or being subject to those processes of deliberate coordination and adaptation which a mind performs. So here's the suggestion, and this is really sound advice. When the urge to control arises, we can stand down. The world doesn't depend on our limited understanding. And although it's beyond the scope of this essay, he says we can apply Hayek to our daily lives. We all have an inner central planner. Understanding Hayek can help us downsize the destructive part of our ego. The more you try to control your life, the more your mental capacity is occupied with trying to do the impossible. The more you lower the quality of your life. And there's not one person who can even control his own thinking. Uninvited thoughts stream through our minds constantly. 
so it's laughable to believe that anyone should control markets. In his classic book on architecture, The Timeless Way of Building, Christopher Alexander writes, When a place is lifeless or unreal, there's almost always a mastermind behind it. It is so filled with the will of its maker that there's no room for its own nature. Alexander offers this advice to those architects who have trouble giving up control and taking out their ego or taking their ego out of a building design. His advice is, you are able to do this only when you no longer fear that nothing will happen. Now, although Alexander's work is meant to help architects design buildings having the quality without a name, his ideas have universal applicability. The quality without a name, Alexander tells us, cannot be made but only generated indirectly by the ordinary actions of people, just as a flower cannot be made but only generated from the seed. Continuing his gardening metaphor, Alexander instructs, if you want to make a living flower, you don't build it physically with tweezers cell by cell. You grow it from the seed. No process of construction can ever create this kind of complexity directly. So applied to human affairs, no amount of effort can replace the generative potential of simply giving up control and being open to the creative powers unleashed in human beings. Those posing as masterminds can never embrace Alexander or Hayek. In architecture, they produce lifeless buildings. When masterminds attempt to control the economy, they squelch the activity of ordinary people and human flourishing. Which brings us to gratitude lesson number three, and that is appreciate grace. Now, we receive grace when we receive unmerited favor. Reynolds points out it takes energy and struggle to ignore how much we receive and how little we return to the world. But we grow used to the investment in deceit as we grow older. Ignoring and lying helps us feel better about ourselves. Reynolds writes, Gratitude is a natural response to taking a realistic look at the world, including our place in it. We aren't realistic enough to gain the benefits of gratitude often. Hayek leads us to take a realistic look at the modern economy we otherwise take for granted. We take our place in it when we use our talents and interests for our own aims, which naturally help serve others. We build on the efforts of those who innovated before us, and our purpose is supported because other minds are free to pursue their purposes without interference from masterminds. Now, clearly, without the efforts of others, past and present, we would perish. Feeling grateful is a function of our state of mind. Mutual interdependence is a fundamental truth of life. Understanding Hayek transforms our thinking into a rich appreciation of how individuals cooperate and bring forth the miracles of the modern economy. With the opening of eyes long closed, our ingratitude becomes gratitude. Now, I know this is asking a lot, right? You probably had plans. You were going to watch some football, maybe do some, you know, heavy-duty shopping over the weekend, right? Maybe it's time to uh, pick up something from Hayek and read it. I would start with The Road to Serfdom and expand from there. But if you would consistently expose your brain to the writings of F.A. Hayek and, and others... I think you would find that uh, it, it helps order your thinking. It hel- not because they're telling you this is what you have to think, but simply because you realize there are broader ways to analyze the information around you and 
You're not dependent on some expert. You know, you're not waiting for somebody in a suit or a lab coat to come step up to a microphone and tell you, hey, here's what it all means. And the idea, too, about, you know, the people who, who want to be masterminds, the ones that want to control everything. Somebody asked the question once upon a time, why, why is it in, in really socialist countries? In fact, we'll just call it, you know, in, in unfree countries. Why are the buildings so butt ugly? And it's because of that mastermind mentality. Somebody up the food chain, someone in the party is determining this is how many buildings are going to be built. This is what they're going to look like. And the builders go out and build them. And really, you know, they're, they're getting paid the same whether it looks good or whether it looks like crap. So they just, they just do it halfway. I mean, I've heard some amazing horror stories from people who lived particularly in the, in the former Soviet Union about, you know, well, it was an interesting apartment building we stayed in. You know, you could get to the seventh floor, but only by taking an elevator to the third floor and then jumping to another elevator, which would go to the seventh floor. It's just, just bizarreness. The water that came out of their water pipes was nasty and smelly and just, you know... But it, it reflects there was a point where the people who were creating those buildings or maybe the people who were maintaining them had no incentive to do anything different, to do anything beautiful or innovative. That's the danger of that mastermind mentality. And it's it's not the same thing as you know, some people are probably feeling that, oh, you're, you're describing anarchy. <laughs> well, it's every man for himself. It's the law of the jungle. I don't think that's what it is at all. I just think it's the recognition that when you put many minds working on a problem over time and from as many different directions as possible, I think you actually have a pretty good shot of finding a solution. And I guess that's something to keep in mind when you look at some of the, the problems that, to, that we tend to struggle with, regardless of the age in which we live. You know, these are the things that humanity has typically struggled with. You know, that desire to influence or to inflict dominion upon, upon other people. That's a real thing. That's a part of human nature. And yet there are some problems that billions of minds have been working on for thousands of years. And somehow we're supposed to believe at least according to the new masterminds, the new central controllers, so this is what you may think, this is what you may say, this is how you should feel. Everything that came before us was wrong. Everything that came before us was racist, and it was stupid, and it was superstitious. Look, the people that came before us, they, they had their blind spots. We have ours though we're not likely to admit them. I mean, we're, we're pretty proud, right? Nobody knows as much as we do. Nobody sees as clearly as we see. But if seeing things clearly really is your goal, I would suggest get to studying and learning and, and reaching for things that are above your head intellectually. The idea here isn't to become the ultimate Jeopardy player and it's not to become the smartest person in whatever room you walk into. It's about becoming a better human being by exposing yourselves to the greatest ideas that other minds have worked on, keeping what works, rejecting what doesn't work for you, but learning how to ask the right questions to get the answers that you need. It's a process that I had to go through in order to really appreciate, and I still go through it because I'm a work in progress. 
Read those old books. Make yourself read stuff that's above your head. You'll be better for it, and so will the people around you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Very proud to have them as sponsors of the program. And um, some really great news if you are looking for a home loan anywhere within the state of Utah. See, uh, Heather's office is located in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. But that doesn't mean that she can't help you if you are looking to secure a VA loan or a traditional loan or a reverse mortgage anywhere in the state of Utah. Why would you want to choose the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage? Plain and simple. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She really understands the ins and outs of what the lenders and borrowers need. But she also has the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. And in a super competitive real estate market, that's going to make a difference. You can contact her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And there's actually an email link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Well, I want to springboard just uh, one more essay here on the idea of gratitude. And this may be beating a dead horse. Maybe you're all gratituded out, but I don't know how to describe it. I don't, I don't want this to sound like, oh boy, he's, he's getting apocalyptic on us. But as I was looking around and just admiring, in spite of all the difficulties, how much abundance we have access to at this point in time. I was struck by the thought that, uh, would you still feel as grateful if this time next year your choices were far more limited? And I'm not suggesting, you know, the world's going to go off the rails then between now and then. I just know it because I had this hunch. It was just a question that popped into my brain. But as, as tough as things have been, and despite the hardships that I know a lot of people, myself included, have had to deal with, over the last couple of years, I still wonder if we fail to appreciate just how good we have it. And for that matter, how important is that sense of gratitude? Got a great article here from Daisy Luther. She is the organic prepper. And it's titled, uh, Gratitude, No Matter How Humble, We Have More Than We Know. Maybe I just needed to hear this, but I want to share this with you because this one really spoke to my heart. Daisy Luther says, I'd planned to take a well-earned day off for Thanksgiving, but she says, I woke up early thinking about how gratitude has changed over the years. The historic first Thanksgiving, you know, the one that school children across the country have reenacted on gymnasium stages for decades, if not centuries, were people grateful just to have enough food to eat so they wouldn't die of starvation over the winter. Now, she says, the past two years have been some of the most overall difficult in my lifetime. I say overall difficult because, like many others, I've had time periods where, that were far worse personally than this. Like the two-year span, she says, when I lost my dad, my job, my house, my car, and then my children's father. That really sucked indescribably. But as far as overall mental health crises, 
grief, financial problems, stress, dystopian laws, rage, crime, and a change to our way of life. She says, these last two years, take the American cake for my lifetime. And so she asks, what the hell are we so thankful about today? Well, she says, I'm glad you asked. Just as our long-ago Puritan ancestors were grateful for some corn and pumpkin and their new neighbors who showed them the fruits of this land before all-out slaughter occurred, but that's outside the scope of this article, we too have small, humble blessings which we must not overlook. She says, perhaps you're having chicken instead of turkey this year or visiting a soup kitchen for your meal, cobbling together a feast based on what you have on hand or just having a burger. It could be that you're all alone and missing your family and a video call is cold comfort when you just want a hug from the people you love. You may have downgraded your living accommodations due to our economic crisis. Or you could be packing up to do just that. Or hosting your last Thanksgiving in a home where you raised your children and lived the story of your life. Well, she says, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that some people have it worse. You already know that and it surely does not make your situation any better. Life isn't a game of, well, at least things aren't as bad as they are for Hildebrand next door. And she says, if that is your life, well, then you need to reprioritize ASAP. Daisy Luther says, your life and your financial situation may have been better in the past, but you're still alive to fight another day. And what greater gift could there be than that? The simplest things, it turns out, are the most important. So she says, instead, think about the things you have to be grateful for without comparison, because I assure you, your low point would be a high point for others. You have a roof over your head. You have food on your table. You're not in immediate life-threatening danger. You have someone, anyone to love. She says, the simplest things are the most important. Just look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The base of that pyramid is made up of the things most essential to life. And if you haven't seen it, she actually has a nice representation of Maslow's motivation model. The pyramid the pyramid with transcendence at the top and self-actualization, aesthetic needs, cognitive needs, esteem needs, belonging and love needs, safety needs, physiological needs. It sounds like nothing, but she says, yet it's everything. <clears throat> Daisy Luther says, trust me, if you've lived without having those needs met, without knowing where your next meal is coming from or where you'll stay that night or if someone's going to come home and beat the crap out of you, you will agree that these pieces of security that so many take for granted mean the world. And she says, if you have those needs met, then you have something for which to be grateful. And while it may not be fancy and it may not be what it once was, you have the basics of survival and you have this day to be thankful for it. If you have the internet or a phone to reach those who can't be with you, you are still blessed with their presence in some way. So instead of thinking about what you don't have, think about what you do have. And remember that not everyone has those needs met. She says, think about all the times throughout history when things were not a given as they are now. Think about people living on the streets, those who survived the shelling and mayhem of the Balkan War, those who were victims of trafficking, those who live in fear of not finding their next meal or surviving until the next day. She says, for just one day, just this one, I encourage you to focus on the meaning of the day. Now she's talking, this was published on Thanksgiving. 
She says tomorrow you can pick up where you left off complaining and worrying, but you might instead consider adding gratitude as a practice to your daily life. But she says for today, let's put aside politics, social tribes, talk about viruses and vaccines and all the things that divide us. Let's ignore someone's purple hair or new tattoo or better yet, find a way to compliment it. Let's enjoy people for who they are, not who you wish they were. Let's focus on the things we have to be grateful for. Those noisy kids running around, the dog, the cat, the family member who always complains, the roof that shelters us, the food on the table. We have no idea what next year will bring, but we have what we have today. And no matter how humble, we have more than we know. Today, just today, let's focus on that. Now, again, I don't have any idea what the next year is going to bring. There are some trends that I see developing that that cause me to think, ooh, you know, the rising gas prices, the supply chain breakdowns, the, the political instability, you know, rumblings of war. Is it going to be Russia? Is it going to be China? I don't know. And really, I don't want to spend all my time focusing on those things like, oh, what's next? Is a bee going to fly through my car window and sting me in the eye while I'm driving? I mean, you drive yourself crazy if you're just looking for all the things that could possibly go wrong. But there's just something that's just gnawing at the back of my conscience and, and causing me to think. Am I showing enough gratitude for what I have? Not just the things, but the people, the circumstances that I have. And would I feel the same way if, if next year was radically different from this year. See, that used to be kind of an academic exercise. Would you feel the same way if all of the stuff suddenly wasn't there for you? Think about how we felt two years ago. There was uncertainty, but I think we were all pretty well settled that, yeah, you know, life is what it is, and there are things we can count on. How many things have changed in the last two years that you thought would never be changed like they have, they have changed? Have to wear a mask if you want to travel. Got to show your vaccine ID papers if you want to go here, want to go there. What's that? Australia's rounding people up and putting them in camps? Yeah, some of these changes have been uh, dramatic, to put it mildly. Let's instead focus on what is going right. And it's okay if it's small things, right? Be grateful for those small victories. Give thanks to God, or if you don't believe in God, give thanks to the universe for being more benevolent than you thought it was. But be grateful. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program exists not to tell you what to think, but to help you better understand the world and your role in it. So to that end, I try to find and share the best information that I can 
I'm particularly reaching out to those people who, for whatever reason, have decided they're okay with being wrong thinkers. They're okay with challenging the narrative and with uh, with charting their own course and not just relying on somebody in authority to tell them the truth. That's not where truth comes from. You've got to be willing to go after it and pursue it yourself. There is one ultimate source of truth, and I would encourage using that source of truth as often as often as possible. But really, it's on you and me to figure out how things are, as well as uh, you know what the not just what the world is, but what it could be, and how to make those things come together. So I thank you for joining us. Our program includes great sponsors like SolarPatriots.com, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAmmo.com, also GovernYourIncome.com, and Sewing and Quilting Center of St. George, as well as the uh, Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George. Well, pay close attention to the kind of things that grab your attention. And this, I, I'm going to... I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I get caught up in personalities or issues in the news more so than I am caught up with actually what's going on in my world or where where are there opportunities for me to improve myself and my understanding of the world. Now, unfortunately, much of broadcast media is uh, is really into personalities. Case in point, uh, look at, uh, you know, the coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Yes, I followed it, and I've talked about it quite a bit on here as well. But it's real easy to get caught up in the personalities. And Well, was Kyle sad? Was he really, you know, remorseful? Or was he crying crocodile tears? And, you know, I mean, there, there was a picture that was posted over the weekend. And, and I have to admit, I, I saw it and went, ooh, that's going to trigger some people. And it was a picture of uh, former President Donald Trump standing there with a thumbs up, you know, next to Kyle and, and Kyle's mom. That was, uh, I guess it was a predictable thing, right? Trump is just helping celebrate, you know, the, the um, acquittal of this young man. But predictably, it did set some people absolutely off. I mean, you know, if you listened off in the distance, thud, 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 that's heads exploding. That's people just losing their minds over this. If that's what you're focused on, are you really doing the good that you could be doing in the world? And it's not to say that, you know, you, you have to ignore everything that's, you know, outside of your little circle of influence. But the amount of effort and energy and, and emotional power that people are putting into that one story seems to indicate that uh, maybe maybe we should be focusing our sympathies and our allegiances Somewhere else. Got a great article here from Alex R. Knight III. This is from everythingvoluntary.com. The title is Conserve Your Sympathies, Fight Your Own Battles. He says, As has not been lost on many modern-day libertarians, the ancient Greek and Roman Stoics counseled, among many other things, that since the vast majority of occurrences we encounter in life are matters beyond our control... It only makes rational sense to disregard such goings-on and focus exclusively on those things which are of immediate concern to us and fall within our own sphere of personal influence. And then he cites, as merely one example, the recent trial of uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. It took place, as did the events which precipitated it, in Wisconsin, which Alex Knight says is a part of North America I've never been to. I've never met Rittenhouse, nor any of the people involved in what he was accused of, nor anyone in their immediate circles. In fact, he says it's unlikely 
that I ever will. None of the events that took place affected me or my property, nor anyone I personally know or am acquainted with. So, making a point of expressing my views on what occurred and the subsequent trial or becoming otherwise emotionally involved in it at any level would not have affected what took place or the eventual outcome in any capacity whatsoever. No physical or even spiritual action I might have engaged in would have either. But he says, look at the wasted words, attention, and physical and emotional energy literally millions of people in mostly the left-wing adjutant media, on social media, in the streets and in living rooms alike, gave to these events. Now, do I have an opinion as to what transpired? Well, he says, for what it's worth, I believe Rittenhouse acted in legitimate self-defense and that the jury in his trial, which never should have even been held to begin with, came to the correct decisions. But he says, again, I ask, what does any of that have to do with me in my own life on my own property in Vermont. He says, In 1875, Lysander Spooner reminded whoever would read his work, Vices Are Not Crimes, A Vindication of Moral Liberty, that, quote, if those persons who fancy themselves gifted with both the power and the right to define and punish other men's vices would but turn their thoughts inwardly, they would probably find that they have a great work to do at home, and that when that shall have been completed they will be little disposed to do more towards correcting the vices of others than to simply give others the results of their experience and observation, end quote. Now, Alex Knight says this quotation may seem slightly off topic, however closely related, but it's that part about great work to do at home that sticks. He says, involving my mind and energies in Kyle Rittenhouse's situation one way or another does him, me, and no one else any good whatsoever. Likewise, Kyle Rittenhouse or anyone in his circle involving themselves in my own personal travails is neither sensible nor helpful nor even welcome. We all of us have great work to do at home, and that should be the exclusive focus of our respective attentions. So he says, perhaps working in my yard, cleaning the house, talking to a friend on the telephone, or writing this essay are not things that are going to change the world. Neither is posting angry comments on fascist book, if you're still even allowed to do that there, or bitching to people down at the local coffee shop. My activities, however, will change my world just a tiny bit. And he says, most, if not all of them, will not piss me off, frustrate me, raise my blood pressure, or make me feel lousier about life. So which makes more sense? Which is more productive? Fighting other people's battles or your own? Do you see them fighting yours? No? Well, is that good or bad? He says, ask yourself. Are you more concerned with Kyle Rittenhouse and his life or becoming a better person yourself, filled with greater peace of mind, focused on personal goals, and on the road to attaining happiness? Again, ask yourself. Alex Knight says there are plenty of people, no doubt, in our own immediate lives who deserve our care and attention, including ourselves. It just so happens. And there are also plenty of battles to fight that reside well within our own personal territory, both external and internal. Best focus on those, not senseless distance abstractions generated by propagandist mass media. His point is that life is short, but it's yours. Live it. 
not someone else's. As I was reading this essay, and it's linked in the show notes, by the way, at thebrianheidshow.com, it reminded me of an essay that I read a few years ago from Paul Rosenberg about the great ephemera machine. And in a nutshell, ephemera is the little distracting things that really don't matter to much of it, don't amount to much of anything. So uh, a good example of ephemera would be you're scrolling through your Facebook fade and you, your Facebook um, <clears throat> feed rather, and you come across, I don't know, the top TikTok videos for 2021. And so you sit and you watch these little short, you know, five and ten second long clips and and uh, you're entertained and maybe you find yourself wasting a whole lot of time. You look at the clock. My goodness, it's been 20 minutes and I've been sitting here, you know, just going through video after video. It wasn't that it wasn't entertaining. It's not that it was in some way, you know, compromising your quality of life. But you were seeking after stuff that really, other than being a distraction, didn't amount to much of anything. That's what ephemera is. And so much of social media, so much of our actual mass media and legacy media, it's all about keeping us distracted. And, and worse, on top of that distraction, keeping us distracted with, with things that uh, we're told matter a great deal, but only to the people who are peddling those particular ideas or ideals. So here's the call to action. At some point, you and I have to be willing to sit down and decide for ourselves what really matters most. Where do I want to give my attention? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you have these superhuman powers, but as for me, I have a limited amount, a finite amount of moral energy that I can apply to a given day. I'd kind of like to direct it toward things that actually matter, that have impact, as opposed to just watching funny videos and laughing to myself. What would you rather do? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If I could ask a a quick favor, if you find value... In this program, if you find value in the articles that I share, I mean, you can you can sit by the radio, you can sit to uh, sit around by your latest podcast platform and just wait for the, the the latest episode to drop, or you can go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com, hit the subscribe button. It won't cost you a dime. You can subscribe, and I will send you my show notes every single day that I do the show. It's, you know, it's interesting reading, and it's for people who want to, you know, delve into some different topics and maybe go a little bit further. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to tell you this is the one true way. Let no one question anything here. I just find some really great articles and some really great writers and commentators who are approaching things from a less partisan, more principled approach. I call them resources for wrong thinkers, and there's actually a special section on the website that's specifically for resources for wrong thinkers. But if you want access to my show notes, I'm happy to send them to you. Just go to thebrianhideshow.com and uh, subscribe. It's really that simple. All right, back to the show here. One of the most positive things that we can learn to do for ourselves is to become less enemy-driven in our thinking. Now, I have to confess There was a time where, in my red meat-throwing phase, I was all about that enemy-driven thinking. And 
Look, there, there's no arguing with the idea. It's, it's a very effective way to generate an audience. You'll still see it played out today. There, there are people who generate very, very large, loyal audiences because they give their listeners demons to wrestle with. So it's, it's a proven tactic. It, it works. And people actually love you when you give them demons to wrestle with. And when you point them towards, oh, those are the people, they're the cause of your anger and your frustration. And boo! You know, <laughs> let's, let's focus our energy on them. Well, I came across a great essay from Kent McManigal. This is from everythingvoluntary.com. And it's reminding us that the other side isn't what's evil. This is kind of a hard thing to swallow, but uh, boy, once you learn it, it sure makes it easier to recognize that it's what's in your own heart that requires your strongest efforts. So if you're inclined to go out there and fix everybody else, you can't fly that flag. Why, that might have connotations of slavery to some people. That's all fine and dandy, but what's what's in your heart? You know, you're going around trying to fix everybody else's hearts here. What about what's in your own? Here's how Kent McManagle describes it. He says, it's popular to paint the other political side as evil. Now, he says the people probably aren't, but their ideas and actions may be. But he says, you got to remember, you are the other side to them. He says, evil isn't just whatever you don't like. That would be too easy. Evil is any action that violates someone who isn't currently violating the life, liberty, or property of another. An act that harms someone who doesn't deserve to be harmed at this moment. Philip Zimbardo, who became famous for his 1971 Stanford Prison Experiment, in his book, The Lucifer Effect, defines evil like this. He says, evil consists in intentionally behaving in ways that, ways that cause harm, abuse, demean, dehumanize, or destroy other innocent others, rather, or using one's authority and systemic power to encourage or permit others to do so on your behalf. And Kent McManigal says, I appreciate that he counts as evil the use of political authority to influence others to do evil. So people aren't evil, but they can commit evil. Some seem to prefer it. And he says, I think it's useful shorthand to refer to someone as evil when they consistently and repeatedly commit acts of evil, even if it's not exactly accurate. So how can you tell if the other side is the evil side or if your side is? Well, Kent McManigal says, check to see which is violating the life, liberty, or property of another. Sometimes you'll discover both sides promote evil, but in different ways. See, this is where the light came on for me some years ago. Yes, there is such a thing as Republican or conservative-flavored statism. The idea that if something isn't under the control of the state, it's by definition out of control. Oh, I knew there was left-wing statism. But it was a hard pill to swallow to realize, yeah, it also comes from the political right. And in both cases, it comes with the approval of the consciences of those who are, you know, trying to use the state to, to get their way. Kent McManigal asks these questions. Do you support the use of government violence through enforcement of legislation to take people's money or other property? Do you advocate the use of government violence to punish people for their choice to use substances you believe they shouldn't use? Do you approve when government violence is used against those who defended themselves from attackers in a way you didn't like or used weapons you don't believe they should use? 
do you applaud the use of government violence to ignore private property rights and the right of association in favor of government borders? Do you favor government violence forcing parents to have their children indoctrinated into beliefs that are useful for the state? And then he asks, can you see how all these political preferences harm the life, liberty, and property of people who aren't currently harming anyone else? Do you engage in mental gymnastics to try to justify any of these positions anyway? He says, if you can't see this stuff, if you can't see this for what it is, you may think of the other side as evil while embracing your own brand of the stuff. Now, I get it. That's a that's a bitter pill, right? Nobody wants to think, well, hey, I'm I'm not out there causing bad things to happen. And I guess I've probably lost a few friends over the years by by pointing out, you know, when when even my friends on the conservative side were leaning on using force and coercion to further an agenda that they couldn't uh, make w- happen with persuasion. That's just as wrong as the little Leninists running around out there, you know, trying to impose you know communism on us. I think it really does come down to the idea that, uh, look, there are people who want to be left alone and leave other people alone to make their own decisions and to pursue happiness in the way that is best suited for them. And that's with the understanding that your pursuit of happiness cannot be, you know, conditioned upon, well, I have to be able to violate other people's rights or their property or otherwise, you know, create some obligation by them. You know, I, I, I can't do that. And then there are people who think, no, I, I need to control everything and everybody. Probably the, the mask issue has, has brought out this, uh, this tendency in, in more people than anything I've seen over, over the last couple of years. And it's very sad to me. I mean, some people take it as a challenge. Well, this is a chance to stand up and fight these rascals and, you know, show them, you know, tooth for tooth, eye for an eye, you know, kind of stuff. But the truth be told, I just want to be left alone. And if someone doesn't, you know, agree with me, you know, there was a time when it bothered me. But that's back when I thought, yeah, I need to, I need to make sure that I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm controlling or I'm trying to, to stay on top of this. And, and, and make other people see things my way. I don't know what happened. I guess uh, the way I've heard it described is once you have studied things out for yourself and you've come to a place where you feel comfortable committing to the truth of something, you've won the toughest battle. You don't have something you need to prove to the other people around you. And it's true that the, the least dogmatic people that I know are the people who have actually put in the most effort to really understand who they are and what they stand for. On the other hand, the people who seem to be uncertain, the people who are most threatened whenever they bump into a differing point of view, the ones who insist, you know, we're going to hash this out, there's going to be a winner at the end of this discussion. More often than not, those are people who simply haven't paid the price to know what they think they know. That uncertainty comes through in the form of anger and the need to dominate others, puff up into this guerrilla version of themselves. You and I can do better, not because we're better than everybody else, but but simply because we recognize there's a difference and, and we should know better. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to send a little love out there for the Sewing Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, 779 South Bluff Street. You can go to their website. I actually have a link in the show notes. It's SewingQuiltingCenter.com. This is a business that's been around since 1984. It's changed owners just two times, currently owned by Teresa and Eric Alsop. And, you know, if you are into sewing or if you are into quilting, you will appreciate that they have everything you could possibly need. Brothers sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, embroidery and sewing machines like a handy quilter, long arm quilting machines. Oh, yeah. The technology is amazing, and best of all, they sell fabric, they sell thread, they sell cuddle material if you want to make some nice warm blankets. Sewing is a very legit uh, hobby, and if you are if you're a partaker of that hobby, this is the store that has everything you could possibly need. So please, go to my show notes, click on the website, do business with the Sewing and Quilting Center, and let them know that their message reached your ears. Well, here's some interesting information. I did not realize that we were uh, in in the midst of a great struggle over information disorder. And I guess this is one of the surest ways that you can start to recognize just how quickly our liberties are dwindling. Is when free speech comes under direct attack because of information disorder. Jonathan Turley has a great article about how the Aspen Institute has created a commission of 16 individuals whose job is to fight information disorder. Now, if you're a truth seeker, which I assume the fact you're listening to this program means you probably are, you should know about this. Turley says the Aspen Institute has issued the results of its much-heralded 16-person commission on information disorder on how to protect the public from misinformation. The Commission on Disinformation and Building Trust was partially headed by Katie Couric, who's still struggling with her own admission that she edited an interview to remove controversial statements by the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Aspen recommendations, however, are a full-throated endorsement of systems of censorship. Now, he links to the 80-page report and the findings and recommendations on how to combat disinformation and misinformation, which are remarkably ill-defined but treat it as a matter of we know it when we see it. Oh, that's scary stuff. Anytime you're dealing with the bogus predicate, you know, we're here to stop hate. Well, what exactly is hate? Oh, we know it when we see it. Okay, (laughs) that means pretty much you got a blank check to do whatever you want to do. Turley says from the outset, however, the commission dismissed the long-standing free speech principle that the solution to bad speech is better speech, not censorship. And the problem is that many today object to allowing those with opposing views to continue to speak or others continue to listen to them. So the commission quickly tosses the free speech norm to the side. This is a quote from the report. The biggest lie of all which this crisis thrives on and which the beneficiaries of mis- and disinformation feed on is that the crisis itself is uncontainable. One of the corollaries of that mythology is that in order to fight bad information, all we need is more and better distributed good information. In reality, merely elevating truthful content is not nearly enough to change our current course. End quote. 
Holy cow. This isn't giving us enough control. (laughs) So it's not a matter of, hey, let the better argument win. We've got to make sure that we're stamping out any argument that doesn't jive with what we want you to know. Now, Jonathan Turley points out, in addition to Couric, the commission was headed by Color of Change President Rashad Robinson and Chris Krebs, former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Now, Robinson was a notable choice since he's been one of the most outspoken advocates of censorship. And Turley says, while some of us have been denouncing the expanding system of censorship by companies like Facebook, Robinson was threatening boycotts if the companies do not rein in those considered racists or spreaders of misinformation. Now, the commission also includes Prince Harry, who has referred to free speech protections under the First Amendment as bonkers. Much of the report seems more aspirational in recommendations like endorsing efforts that focus on exposing how historical and current imbalances of power, access, and equity are manufactured and propagated with mis- and disinformation, and on promoting community-led solutions to forging social bonds. Now, the commission also appears to endorse the movement against objectivity and both-sidism in the media. Commissioners discussed the need to adjust journalistic norms to avoid false equivalencies between lies and empirical fact (laughs) in the pursuit of both sides and objectivity particularly in the areas of public health, civil rights, or election outcomes. Oh, (laughs) that is still a sore spot, apparently. Former New York Times Magazine reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones was one of the journalists who pushed the New York Times to denounce its own publication and promise to curtail columns in the future. In doing so, she railed against those who engaged in what she called even-handedness, both-sidism journalism. Likewise, Stanford Communications professor emeritus Ted Glasser has publicly called for an end of objectivity in journalism as too constraining for reporters seeking social justice. In an, interv- in, in, uh, in an interview with the Stanford Daily, Glasser insisted that journalism need to free itself from this notion of objectivity to develop a sense of social justice. He rejected the notion that journalism is based on objectivity and said that he views journalists as activists because journalism at its best and indeed history at its best, is all about morality. Thus, journalists need to be overt and candid advocates for social justice, and it's hard to do that under the constraints of objectivity. Well, gee, maybe they need to stop calling themselves journalists, if that's the case, because that's what journalism is supposed to be, right? Giving you the facts, minus the judgment, letting you, the reader, make up your own mind. However, Jonathan Turley says the most chilling aspect of the report is the obvious invitation for greater forms of censorship. It calls for the government to become involved in combating misinformation, the scourge of free speech, and an invitation for state controls over speech. Ironically, there's no need for such direct government involvement when social media companies are acting as the equivalent of state media in the censorship of public debates. Now, the import of the recommendations are abundantly clear. He gives a few things. He says, this is right from the report. Reducing harms. The report says mitigating the worst harms of mis- and disinformation, such as threats to public health and democratic participation and the targeting of communities through hate speech and extremism. Then there's the call for a comprehensive federal approach. 
they want to establish a comprehensive strategic approach to countering disinformation and the spread of misinformation, including a centralized national response strategy, clearly defined roles and responsibilities across the executive branch, and identified gaps in authorities and capabilities. Then there's something called the Public Restoration Fund, which calls to create an independent organization with a mandate to develop systemic misinformation countermeasures through education, research, and investment in local institutions. It also calls for civic empowerment, meaning to invest and innovate in online education and platform product features to increase users' awareness of and resilience to online misinformation. That sounds like a really fancy way to say brainwashing. Oh, how about this one? Super spreader accountability. The commission calls for holding super spreaders of mis- and disinformation to account with clear, transparent, and consistently applied policies that enable quicker, more decisive actions and penalties commensurate with their impacts, regardless of location or political views or role in society. I think that's another fancier way of saying let's keep Donald Trump off Twitter, but I could be wrong. And then there are amendments to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Number one, withdraw platform immunity for content that's promoted through paid advertising and post-promotion. And two, remove immunity as it relates to the implementation of product features, recommendation engines, and design. Now, Jonathan Turley says, the ill-defined terms of misinformation and disinformation become more menacing when those terms are used as the basis for a government and private sector system to, quote, take decisive action and penalties against those who spread such, such information. The commission is more focused on harm than on the specific definition. Disinformation, they say, inflames long-standing inequalities and undermines lived experiences for historically targeted communities, particularly black and African-American communities. False narratives can sow division, hamper public health initiatives, undermine elections, wink, wink, or deliver fresh marks to grifters and profiteers. And they capitalize on deep-rooted problems within American society. Disinformation pours lighter fluid on the sparks of discord that exist in every community. End quote. I don't know, man. (laughs) That sounds a lot like we are afraid that if people know the truth, they will withdraw their support. Bottom line is free speech advocates are facing a generational shift that's now being reflected in our law schools where free speech principles were once a touchstone of the rule of law. Is that something we can sit by and just let happen? I think not. You got to be willing to speak out. That's what this program's about. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment of the program today. And just a quick invitation here. If you haven't checked out GovernYourIncome.com, Go ahead and click on the link. It's in my show notes. And this just may be the opportunity for you or for somebody you know. I'll tell you this right up front. It's not for everybody. This is an opportunity to learn how to do day trading in the foreign currency exchange markets, the Forex markets. 
And you think about this, I mean, not everybody, not everybody aspires to be a day trader, but it's a company that is so confident in their system. They will train you. They will train you well enough. They will actually give you company money to trade with. And if you go to the, the landing page there for governyourincome.com, it'll answer a lot of your questions. It'll put you in touch with them if you need to know more. I don't know. Is this the one for you? <clears throat> is, this, is this the information that you need to become truly income independent, able to work anywhere that you have, a, you know, have a broadband, any place, you know, that you want to, to be able to set your own schedule and not be tied to, you know, certain corporate policies? It may be, but that's a decision you have to make. So take a look at it. It's in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Well, right on cue, just as the prevailing COVID narrative starts falling apart like a soup sandwich, another variant is now being touted by the narrative managers. This one's out of South Africa. It's very dangerous. And, uh, you know, we're expected to quake in fear and fall back in line. Okay, well, I guess we better mask up again and we better try everything that didn't work before. We're going to try it even harder. I don't think that uh, I don't think this crisis is ever supposed to end. It's such a great way of controlling people, and I'm sorry if that sounds cynical. Well, it's Brian. It's about public health. I don't think so. I don't get that notion at all. And and I came across a, a, an essay that Joaquin Book from the American Institute for Economic Research had published. This was back in July. Some of the key lessons learned over the past couple of years regarding the race to win COVID finity. And this thing has actually aged very well. He called it about as well as it could be called. Well, King Book says, shifting the goalposts is the patented approach of all totalitarians. Snatch away a little bit of freedom. Harmless, right? Relax. It's for a good cause. Temporarily hand some of that freedom back, but never all of it. Reminding everyone we're still withholding freedoms for a good cause, even if the targets, methods, and reasons have all shifted. And then just repeat forever. He says, this is how we got massive governments, massive welfare warfare states, large-scale invasions of privacy and dignity, and the unending path to unfreedom that we're experimenting with these days. But he says, what absolutely has baffled me since last spring's, spring rather, is that there aren't riots on the streets. Where are the mobs denouncing their autocratic leaders? Where are the people with pitchforks screaming about rights? Liberties that everybody paid lip service to until about five minutes ago are gone, temporarily suspended, followed by hand-waved and empty arguments about your civic duty to other people's health. Still, most people succumbed and agreed, indeed wanting more. Now, one thing I do have to point out. Strictly speaking, if he's talking about America, he's right. You are not seeing the public mobilize at much of any level to stand up against these mandates. And that's not to discount. I know there are people, you know, locally and, and statewide who, who are doing this kind of thing, but not compared to, for instance, Europe, where you are literally seeing thousands of people in the streets and, and in some cases actually battling it out with the cops, the riot police, because they're tired of this. They're not going to take it anymore. So I'm not saying that that violence is a good thing, but I'm saying... Some people have had their fill of the totalitarianism that's being forced down on them. And I do wish them the very best. I do. I think that uh, it's, it's a battle that needs to be fought. 
But there is a part of me that wonders, why don't we see more of that same spirit of no? Not just no, hell no. We're not going to do this here in America. Joaquin Book says, the science is settled, we've learned. The pandemic is real and extraordinarily dangerous, and even though it's a danger only for the old and the immunocompromised, all policies must apply across the demographic board. Anything less, anything less, he says, would fail the test of equity and solidarity, like the romanticizing of world wars, especially by those who didn't have to endure them, where rich and poor died together, shared the horrors of the trenches or the fear in the air raid shelters as allies and equals. He says, in our invisible war, we too shall suffer the injustices of COVID policies altogether. Some of those arguments initially made some sense. But here's this brand new thing we don't understand that seemed deadly and spread fast and invisibly and with an unclear pathway. And our hospitals were apparently hopelessly understaffed. So only a tiny shock would collapse the whole system. Millions and millions of dead. Well, he says, even some of my clever friends repeatedly invoke this supreme unicorn argument. If we don't do X, we'll run out of hospital beds, and then everybody dies. So it's better to act now than wait until we have an epidemic of hospitalizations at every health czar across the planet. And most credulous citizens believed them, regardless of how poor the evidence was or how off the mark the silly models were. Never mind that we have about zero indication anywhere that hospitals ran out of capacity or that they have the ability to prioritize even if they did or expand capacity in an emergency should they need to. The military hospital ship that was sent into New York City with grandeur at the height of the outbreak last year mostly remained empty before it was unceremoniously removed. The privately funded and express-raised field hospital in Milan, Italy during its worst moments last year mostly sat unused before it was dismantled. Same in Stockholm, Sweden, and across many U.S. states. What's worse, the full hospital fear was one of the contributing factors for New York's infamous killing policy last year. To force nursing homes full of old, susceptible, and highly COVID-vulnerable people to receive those recently discharged so that we could free up space in hospitals. This mistake spread infections to the worst possible places. That was the fault of trigger-happy and panic-ridden policies, not teenagers who wanted to party on the beach. But even if the argument did make sense, he says, let me just get this straight. In order to prevent innocent people suffering from ordinary ills like cancer or diabetes or car accidents being refused hospital care, we front-run that chimera by canceling such treatments and dissuading people from coming to hospitals so that we can free up space for potential COVID patients. Really? We guaranteed collateral damage for very mysterious benefits. The price for this mistake is slowly revealing itself. Homicides, overdoses, suicides, delayed surgeries and treatments leading to thousands of additional deaths from cancer alone. He says this was never about public health. And how can we tell? The next step of this grand government takeover has arrived in the most predictable of all. Wave the fears of another disaster, never mind the order of magnitude lower urgency. Alistair Heath comments on the situation in Britain where safety through vaccines and antibodies is apparently insured, but where COVID derangement syndrome still rules its leaders. Quote, Britain would never have locked down had the original wave been this mild. And there appears to be widespread support among swaths of the public for continuing with all sorts of precautions for as long as any risk of COVID remains. In practice, forever. 
Joaquin Book says, look, we got about 40 rounds of flattening the curve, two weeks to save the NHS. Yet the National Health Service doesn't look more saved now than at any point during the pandemic. But he says, at least this weekend, I finally got some pitchforks. Medical freedom protests in London, though about a year too late. The Israeli prime minister claimed the science was unequivocal that vaccines work, are safe and effective before threatening to make the unvaccinated second-class citizens. Well, people didn't like that. And it wasn't exactly reassuring that he threatened heavy crackdown by government power if he didn't get his way. One wonders if the science were that clear and the message so equivocal. What's the need for theatrics and hysterics? Now, remember, this was published back in July. So uh, since that time, isn't it curious that uh, highly, highly vaccinated Israel has seen so many breakthrough infections and so much uh, so much of a spike in the transmission of COVID? Interesting stuff. Now, Joaquin book goes on, he asks, you know, he answers the question, what do you make of all this? What do you make of this weird transformation that we see, the, the horrors and negligence of the public? He says, thankfully, we are seeing some people object to oversized government crackdowns about an order of magnitude too little and a year too late. He says, it doesn't matter what the future threat will look like or how damaging the Delta or Epsilon variants current, currently seem. He says, I'm primarily not afraid of them nor the Zeta, Eta, or Theta variants that are in the making as well. He says, I'm afraid of Omega. That's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Though he says, I don't think it'll be a string of a pretty lame coronavirus, but actually something considerably worse. All I can say is, there's never been a better time to think as clearly and independently as possible. Use that free speech. Use it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.